All right. Uh, Mark 9, 14 through 32. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you and he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never again, en- never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of God. The Beatles, maybe the greatest band of all time, have a great song, one of their many great songs called Help. And uh, I wonder how many of you are good at asking for help. I had to ask for help this week. I won't go into the details, but historically, uh, that has been a very difficult thing for me to do. When I know I have to ask someone for help, oftentimes I, you know, I get awkward or I get proud or I get self-conscious or shameful. So how are you at asking someone for help? Um, Where does the depth of your own need have to be at in order for you to ask someone to help you? You know, as I get older, I'm more and more convinced that um, the willingness with which we ask for help is one of the barometers or one of the signs of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A willingness to ask for help is actually, according to the Christian message, not a sign of weakness. Rather, a willingness to ask for help is a sign of strength from the Christian perspective. That's what our story in many ways this morning is about. We're making our way here through Mark's gospel. The word gospel means good news, and there's four of them in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all kind of come at the same story, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus from their own particular angles. And as we've made our way through Mark chapter by chapter and verse by verse, we saw last week, if you were here, the great turning point in Mark. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. And then we see Jesus transfigure. He, He 
shows himself sort of as the true God, as the Messiah. His face and his clothes are radiant on the mountaintop with Peter and James and John. It was a great moment. It's sort of the turning point in all of the gospel of Mark. From this point forward, the transition in Mark has already taken place. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. And he's all about the business of telling his followers, telling his disciples what it's going to mean for him to die and to be raised again from from the dead. And so while this great thing is happening up on the Mount of Transfiguration, down in the valley, (laughs) down in normal life, the other disciples are having kind of a bleak time. The great artist, the Renaissance painter Raphael, not the Ninja Turtle, by the way, the painter, he was before the Ninja Turtle, I think, um, he, uh, his last painting, which was unfinished, is called The Transfiguration of Jesus. And one of the striking things about that painting is that it's all about the vivid contrast of the glory and the light of, and the beauty of what is happening with the three disciples and Jesus up on the mountain, contrasted with the darkness and the brokenness and the weariness of what's going on with the rest of the, the disciples and the people of Israel down in the valley. So things are a little bleaker, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. So what's happening down in the valley that makes things bleak? Well, for one, we see the brokenness of the world manifesting itself in this young boy who is demon-possessed by a grade A varsity-level superstar demon, the kind that can, Jesus says, only be casted out by prayer, a a big-time demon a major demon is possessing this boy. It's a significant issue. <clears throat> it shows the, the, the effects of sin on a, on a fallen world. But we also see, maybe more importantly for our purposes this morning, not only that this boy has been demon-possessed and he's caused all sorts of <clears throat> suffering and grief for his family, but the disciples' reaction is one where they are unwilling to recognize their own need their own need for Jesus, (coughs) for his help and his love, excuse me. Um, Jay, will you please go grab me a little more water? (coughs) I know that I'm going to need this. Sorry. So one of the issues is the guy's demon-possessed, but another one of the issues (coughs) is that the disciples try to deal with this young boy without asking God for help at all. And so we find ourselves in a situation where the disciples, they sort of got a, I got this mentality. I don't know if you've ever played basketball or football. I used to play basketball in middle school and high school. I grew up with this boy who never passed. He was like the ultimate ball hog. And anytime you would say, pass me the ball, I'm wide open. He would just shove you off and say, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about it. And then, of course, he'd jack up an air ball. Um, That's kind of like what the disciples are doing now. They're like, I got this, Jesus. I got this. We're good to go. We can take care of this ourselves. And things don't go well for Jesus' disciples or for this young man. And so we come to kind of the main point of this whole passage this morning. Here's the way I want to summarize it for you. (coughs) Help is given to those who know their need, not to those who ignore their need. Okay? So if you take anything, take that. It's really important if you want to understand what Christianity is about. Help is given to those who know their need, not to those who ignore their need. And I want to break that down into two parts, two points in this story. First, I want to show you a dad who needs help and knows it. And then secondly, disciples who need help and ignore it. A dad who needs help and knows it, disciples who need help and ignore it. Okay? Thank you, Jay. So let's move forward with a dad 
who needs help and knows it. Look at the story with me again. There in verse 14, the disciples <coughs> are hanging out as Jesus and the other three come down the mountain, and there's a great crowd around them. They're arguing with the Pharisees for some reason, but the root of the issue is that there is this man that has approached the disciples of Jesus and asked them to do something. They've asked him to cast this powerful demon out of his son. We see that there in <coughs> 17 and 18. Uh, this father finds himself in a position of, of deep need, right? He's encountered a, a major problem. I mean, look at the detail that Mark uses there in verses 18, 19, 20, etc., about what he had been experiencing with this boy and his, his only son. He's encountered a, a major problem, a, a major evil, a major power. He's, he's come up against something, here's the point, that's way beyond his ability to deal with and to address. I mean, look at what Mark says. He says, this has been happening since the child, the child was a little boy. This demon is tormenting his son. He's tried to throw him into the fire. He's tried to throw him into the water. This family, I mean, just imagine, they've experienced extreme grievous suffering and torment through no fault of his own. Um, this boy's, this man's son, whom the man loves deeply, has been, you know, scarred and, and wounded by this very powerful demon. And the man has come to the point where he says, there's absolutely nothing I can do to help my only child. So he realizes his need and he sees an opportunity when Jesus' disciples come to his village, come to his side of town. Surely he's heard at this point about Jesus' disciples casting out other demons as they've gone out on missionary journeys in the name of Jesus. But here we find that when Jesus comes down from the mountain with Peter and James and John, the other nine disciples have been unsuccessful. They've been trying to cast this son, this man's son's demon out, and they haven't been able to do it. And so the man, when Jesus encounters him, and here's where you need to really follow, the man is in a really tender place. He's in a, a place where he is hurting. He's emotional, right? He's afraid. And as he approaches Jesus, what we see here is a very human very honest mixture of emotions. I mean, look what he says to Jesus there. He says um, in verse 23, excuse me, verse 21, 22, um, if you're able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And in, in, in that phrase, if you're able, you can sort of detect a little tinge of doubt. You can, you can almost imagine what's going on inside this man's head. He's thought, man, I, sure, I thought the demon would surely be cast out by Jesus' disciples, but this hasn't worked either. He's sort of at the end of his rope. He's tried what he thought was the final resort, and it hasn't worked. The demon is still tormenting his son. And so he comes to Jesus sort of at the end of his tether, and he says, Jesus, if you're able to do this, will you please help? But inside of him, he's, he's thinking, is Jesus really able to help? Is, is he really willing to help? Can anyone heal my son? You know, perhaps I made a mistake coming here and asking these people to try to deal with this situation. He's doubting to a certain degree, but we can see that he is still willing to ask Jesus for compassion. If you can do anything, Jesus, I'm not sure at this point, but have compassion on us and help us. And then the man's entire posture is summed up in this profound statement that he makes in verse 24, where he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. What a statement. 
I mean, think about that for a second. That's a profound articulation of the complexity of most of our hearts. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're almost always a mixture of belief and unbelief, of trust and doubt, of faith and fear. And so you have to appreciate how Jesus responds. He does help. He doesn't say to this guy, come on, man. When you get yourself together and get your faith in a stronger position, when you stop doubting, when your trust in me is adequate, then I will help you. That's not what Jesus does. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, all is possible for one who believes. Now think about that sentence. What Jesus is not saying here is that the strength of our faith is what makes all things possible. What he is saying is that the object of our faith, even if our faith is weak, even if our faith is full of doubts like this father's faith was, that is what makes all things possible. Jesus is putting on display here again the truth that he loves to meet the needs of those who recognize that they cannot help themselves. He loves to demonstrate his loving power to those who acknowledge their own weakness, yet desperately want to cling to him. And I think that's really important for us to just take a second this morning and reflect on together. And here's why I think it's important. Many of you, if you're a Christian, and maybe even if you're not a Christian, your approach to God And God's involvement in your life goes oftentimes like this. We tend to believe that the amount of help we receive from God is tied to the level of faith we have in God. And so when things in our life aren't going well, when we're experiencing suffering, when we're undergoing grief or loss, when we have doubts, oftentimes our response is to think, well, I just don't believe enough. My faith is too weak. If I had a more adequate or a stronger faith, then these things wouldn't be happening to me anymore. Do you believe that? Do you struggle with that in your life? Do you believe that the reason that you are suffering or fearful or doubting is because you haven't sort of met the required baseline of level, level of trust in God that will enable him to come and work and help you? see, that's not what we see here with this man. This man doesn't have this, you know, PhD level strong faith. He admits as much. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's as if this man is saying, you know, Jesus, listen, I believe you, but not, not really. (laughs) I believe you, but it's hard. I believe you, but I have doubts. I believe you, but I'm weak and I struggle. And when I wake up in the mornings, oftentimes I'm wondering if you're there at all. I believe you. I I want you to help me, but I really, really feel weak. That's how this guy approaches Jesus. And yet Jesus is both willing and happy to help this man, to cast out the demon, which we see him do there powerfully in verses 26 and 27. You see, Jesus helps this man. And Jesus will help you, not because he sees a strong faith. Jesus helps this man because he sees an acknowledgement of need. It's sort of like this. When we mistakenly think that it is 
our faith, our sort of work, our level of trust that determines how much God is going to love us or help us or be with us. It's sort of like when we're driving a car and instead of looking through the windshield to see what's coming on to make sure, you know, we're not veering into oncoming traffic, we're looking at the windshield, you know, staring at the bug that just got splattered as we're driving down I-35 in a rainstorm. If you find yourself looking at the windshield instead of through the windshield, I don't want to be on the road. Just let me know if you're doing that and I'll stay home, right? You do not want to be on the road doing that. That's an unhealthy situation. It's going to create disaster really, really quickly. That's what we tend to do when we believe that the level of God's help is determined by the level of our faith. Faith is merely the avenue through which we see God. And when we're so focused on making sure our faith is like this superstar level faith, it's like we're just staring at the windshield instead of looking at the person that faith is intended to point us to. All faith is is a receptacle. It's a means of receiving the grace and the love and the power and the strength of God. What matters is not so much the strength of your belief, but the strength of the one in whom you are believing, you see. Tim Keller writes this, through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness or perfect faith, just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. So you see this dad, he needed help and he knew it. And Jesus did help. And the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. When we see our need and only when we see our need and are willing to recognize that we can't take care of it on our own, And look to Jesus, weak though that may be, that is when Jesus loves to give us the help that we need. We see here this dad who needs help and knows it, who is weak and knows it, who sometimes doubts and struggles and can take that to God and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Please come and deal with these problems that I can't deal with on my own. And of course, God is pleased in Jesus Christ to do just that. Now, Contrasting that, Father, we see, secondly, the disciples, right? We've seen a dad who needs help and knows it, but then the story is also about disciples that need help and ignore it. You see, what Mark is doing here is intentionally setting side by side the expressed neediness and faith of the dad with the expressed arrogance and self-dependence of the disciples, What we see from them here is rather than acknowledging their need and their weakness, these disciples, who, by the way, should know better than anyone else, right, at this point, given their experience with Jesus, they believe that they can sort of go it on their own. They're like the streetball player that says, I got this, right? They don't think that they have need. And it's seen especially here in the the end of the story. After Jesus heals this boy, the disciples are puzzled as to why they could not cast out the demon on their own. There in verse 28, when Jesus enters the house and his disciples are with him, they ask him privately, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus' answer is the key to understanding, really, in a sense, this whole story. Jesus says, this kind kind of demon can only be driven out or cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, why does he say that? Here's why. The reason Jesus says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer is because prayer is the avenue of faith. To put it another way, 
Prayer is faith expressed in words. Prayer is trust in God verbalized. And where there is true faith, where there is true trust, where there is true acknowledgement of our neediness and weakness, there is also prayer. But where there is little faith, where there is little acknowledgement of neediness, where there is little trust, there is little or no prayer. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is basically this. The reason that you couldn't cast the demon out is because you didn't think you needed help to do it. The reason you couldn't cast out the demon is because you ignored the provision, the power, the strength that only I can give you. I mean, think about how foolish and arrogant this behavior of the disciples is for just a second. You know, these guys have seen Jesus do countless miracles at this point, right? They've heard him teach with this incredible, incisive wisdom and authority. And yet they are at a point where they believe they're strong enough to just go it alone, to just do all these amazing things without Jesus. These are the same guys who are scared to death in the middle of a storm when Jesus was with them. And now he's not with them and they think they're good to go and casting out this grade A varsity level superstar demon. These, these are the same guys that watched Jesus feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And then they were arguing about who forgot the bread in the boat. Remember that a few weeks ago? Now those same guys think that they're sufficient in and of themselves to do God's work. They're kind of like, you know, a tightrope walker. But a very, very inexperienced. They're like if I tried to walk on a tightrope, you know. Let's say I'm trying to go across Madison Avenue in New York City from the top of one skyscraper to the top of another skyscraper on a tightrope. And the first half, you know, I'm strapped into everything I could possibly be strapped. Like there's a helicopter over me, like strapping me in. I've got everything I need to do my best to sort of manage my way out onto the rope at least a little bit. And let's say I make it maybe a third of the way out. And I look up at the helicopter and I say, don't worry, I'm good. (laughs) Unstrap. I think I got this. No, I've never done it before, but I've learned what I need to do. My balance is impeccable. Don't worry. And try to just make my way across the rest of the type rope all by myself. It's not going to go well. One gust of wind would, it wouldn't even take wind. I mean, who am I kidding? That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. They think that just because they've experienced a little bit of the power of God through themselves by faith, that they can all of a sudden do these amazing things on their own. The bottom line here, the bottom line is that the disciples are trying to do the ministry of God without the power of God. They are utterly self-reliant, you see. They're unwilling to recognize their limits and their frailty. They're unwilling to acknowledge their need. And in that sense, they contrast heavily with this father. The disciples thought they could do it themselves. And the question through this story that the living God right now is asking each of you is this. Are you ignoring your need for God's help in your life today? Are you ignoring your need for God's help in your life? Let's analyze for just a second. Think about what some of your current struggles or uh, problems are. And then think about the first 
instincts that you have as to a solution or a remedy for those problems. Let me just throw out a few examples. I know you and I know me, so these are probably somewhat relevant examples. Uh, For example, when your children are rebelling, mine don't ever do that, but I I think y'all's do. When your children are rebelling, that was a joke, and uh, misbehaving and not listening, um, is your first instinct as a parent to, uh, to try to dis- discipline them more consistently or, or to read another book? That's my instinct. Really stupid thing to do, by the way. Um, or to, you know, to change to X parenting method or to just yell louder. That's <laughs> some of y'all's instincts. Um, or to, uh, you know, to do something a little bit different, to adjust sort of the way you're approaching it. You know, is that your initial instinct? You know, you might want to ask yourself, why aren't those things working? Because my guess is they're not working, at least to the degree that you want. Part of the reason is because you won't ask for help first from God, but you try to do it on your own instead. You see, you need help in something as practical as parenting, but far too often we ignore it. That kind can only be handled by prayer. Your kids, not to say that they're demon-possessed, but by expressing your neediness, and looking to God for help. That's the first sign of an acknowledgement of need. Here's another example. When you're busy working, maybe you're doing ministry work. You know, you're trying to serve Jesus and follow Jesus. When you're busy working in ministry, and this, you know, this is a big one for me as a, as a pastor, and you feel bombarded with needs and, and you feel tired. Now, what's your first instinct in that situation? Is your first instinct to, to keep longer hours? or to hire someone else to help you, or to get coaching, or to work on your skills, or something like that. You know, why aren't those things working? Why do you still feel frustrated and irritable and exhausted? Well, part of the reason is because you won't ask for help, but you try to do it on your own. You need help in ministry. You need help in work, but you ignore it. That can only be handled by prayer, by expressing your neediness and looking to God for help. Another example, when you're interested in evangelism, you Christians, you love your friends, you love your family that aren't following Jesus. You want want them to know about how much Jesus loves them and the grace of God that's available for them in the gospel. And and you've tried to share the gospel with them and they haven't just dropped down on their knees and repented. It hasn't been the response that you were wanting. What's your first instinct? Is it to go take an apologetics class, you know, become like a kung fu ninja of Christian arguments? So that if someone says, well, I doubt because of this, you can go, wah, bah, 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 crush their argument. I destroyed you. You should become a Christian now. God loves you. It's not going to work, by the way. Not that apologetics you shouldn't do, but that's not the best method. Um, is your first reaction to, you know, to just get tired and, and think, man, I, maybe I've got the wrong approach and I should take an evangelism class? Or is your first response to think, man, I should just you know, try again and, and be a little bit more passionate in my pleas with this person? You know, why aren't those things working? Well, in something like evangelism, it's even more prominently evident that you won't ask for help from God. Your first instinct isn't to do it with Jesus. Your first instinct is to do it by yourself. Listen, you can't save that person. That can only happen when you ask God to show up and do it for you. It can only be handled by prayer. When you're dealing with addiction or with a besetting sin, what's your first instinct? Is your first instinct to try just to stop cold turkey? Through sheer willpower, I will never smoke another cigarette. 
through sheer willpower, I will stop eating junk food. I will never do this again. And maybe you put up a little chart on your refrigerator to keep a record of how great you're doing. And then the first time you, you know, eat seven chocolate chip cookies for dessert, you, you're like, dang, I can't mark that on the chart today. This isn't working. The first time you're dying for a cigarette during your lunch break and you, you just got to have one, you bum one off of a friend, you think, why can't I stop? The first time you fall again into that sin or temptation, you think, I, this is not working. Why isn't it working? Well, the reason it isn't working is because our tendency in all of these situations is to first try to go it alone, to have an I got this mentality rather than asking God for help. Listen, you cannot change yourself. You can't meet your own needs. You cannot repair what is broken inside of you. You cannot deal with your problems by yourself. And the reason that God keeps letting you fail in efforts to improve or to change or to heal might be because he wants you to learn that your own efforts can't do it. You need his help. God wants you to trust him first, to ask him first. He wants you to say, I believe Help my unbelief. I believe, but not very well. I am not able. I am not prepared. I am not sufficient. I am not adequate. Please, 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 God, help me. You know, we are obsessed in the contemporary world, particularly in the contemporary Christian world, with acquiring the skills we think we need and the expertise we all crave in order to be seen as able and relevant and successful. That's exactly what the disciples were doing here. It's exactly what we do. And in the end, it only leads to frustration, to loss, and to death. Jesus here is asking that we lay down our own efforts, that we stop ignoring our limits, and our neediness, and that we look to him to help us where we can't help ourselves. Which, by the way, is everywhere. Jesus heals this boy. He raised this boy up, and he did it in a context of weakness, you see. He did it in a context of a father who acknowledged that he can't do this. He doesn't have the expertise. He doesn't have the skills. He doesn't have the ability. He just had a weak, clinging faith. And faith is man in his weakness trusting God's promise in his word. And through such weakness, the strength of God is seen. You see, Jesus shows that here through this lesson he gives the disciples, but he preeminently shows that in his own life. And in his own death, Jesus, in an exemplary way, becomes weak for us. Jesus becomes needy. Jesus becomes poor. Jesus becomes helpless on the cross. And in that weakness, in that helplessness, Jesus conquered with strength the powers of darkness and sin and death. Faith is his call to follow him on the same path, the path of weakness the path of acknowledgement of need, the path of praying, I believe. Help. Help my unbelief. 
For here in our weakness, we are made strong. God uses the weak things of this world, the helpless people of this world, to destroy the influence of the things which are mighty. In this way, the glory is always his. Henri Nouwen was a priest that I've spoken about before. He's a man that I more and more admire and learn from his writings. And in his book, In the Name of Jesus, uh, Nouwen writes about his experience um, when he moved from ministry into living at the La Arche uh, community, where it's a community where that was um, particularly organized for mentally handicapped people, people with severe mental handicaps. And um, Noah spent the last number of years of his life ministering among these people and living among these people. And um, I, I was struck by something I read from a book this week of his where he's discussing what he first experienced when he went to the La Arche community. And I think it's a fitting conclusion to this sermon. Here's what Nguyen writes. Listen to this. Speaking of the mentally handicapped and wounded people that he was beginning to work with and live with, he says this. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive love regardless of my accomplishments. I am telling you all this, he writes, because I am deeply convinced that the Christian is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. The great message we have to carry is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has redeemed us in love and wants others to know that he is the one who has done it. Can you acknowledge your need and helplessness with complete vulnerability? Can you do what this man did? I believe. Help. Help my unbelief. When you've reached that point in your spiritual journey, you are not far from God and getting farther away. Rather, you are drawing near to Him. Because it's only those who will acknowledge their need and see their weakness that can trust and rest in the provision and strength that God freely gives us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us with a deep love, a love that transforms our desires and affections, a love that makes us new. Thank you, Father, that you love us not because we are lovely or lovable, You love us not because we are deserving of your love, not because we've proven to be desirable to you. You love us not because of how excellent we have shown ourselves to be in the spiritual life. You love us not because of our abilities or our accomplishments or our wisdom or our feats of ingenuity. You love us not because of how great we are as parents or because of how great our marriage is or because of how spiritual we have been in the past. You love us. You love us because you are a God of love. And that love is supremely manifested and demonstrated in meeting the needs that we can't meet ourselves. And Father, we thank you that you don't wait for us to prove 
that we're worthy of your love. You don't wait for us to get our acts together before you will help. No, you, you allow us to cling to you, weak though it may be. And you do what is necessary. You accomplish the change that's required. It's all of your grace. Will you help us, Father, today to trust these things and to believe that this is true in our own lives, in the practical everyday realities that we face? Help us to respond to our circumstances like this man responded. Help. Help my unbelief. Help me in this situation. And help us to look for you and rest in you to help us. Thank you that you have already helped us in the forgiveness of sins and renewal that we experience through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And thank you that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you continue in our daily lives to bring us help when we can acknowledge that we need it. Will you help us in these things even this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.